My name is Dr. Anwar Osborne. And I'm Dr. Matthew Wheatley. And this is Pobscast. Hello and welcome everybody to another Pobscast. Glad you could join us today. I'm here as always with Matt Wheatley. We're excited to be here today. Fortunately, the one road that still works in Atlanta is the one between my house and Dr. Osborne, so <laughs> we were able to we were able to make it happen. That's crazy, man. Uh, did you get caught in any of that traffic? No. Uh, fortunately, it was all in a different part of town, so you know I I feel for the people that have to deal with it. But yeah, uh, hopefully Atlanta can get it together. But yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you, we're not having an OBS conference here, though. We are having an OBS conference in Nashville. You like that segue? That's right. That's right. We've been studying. We've been listening to podcasts, trying to improve our game, bits and pieces. So if you're in Atlanta, you have to go the other way on I-20. And uh, the conference is in Nashville this year. What are the dates again? It is September uh, 14th and 15th in Nashville. In Nashville. And I think this year ought to be a pretty good conference. We did a lot of changes. We got separate tracks on the second day for places that are kind of starting the OBS unit and just getting things together. And we have a second track that covers more advanced, in-depth topics. And we have a keynote speaker this year that's Mike Ross, right? He's confirmed. Mike Ross is excited. He says he's going to give the best keynote speech ever in deference to all of our former keynote speakers. He's <laughs> laying down the gauntlet. So, uh, I'm excited to hear what uh, new jokes he's coming out with, but I'm excited for Mike, and it'll be a good talk. He'll That's give us true. the, uh, in addition to giving us the routine sort of what's new in OBS talk, he'll be delivering the keynote address mm-hmm. that'll probably cover all of OBS and what he's seen and where he thinks it's going to go. So uh, pretty stoked about that. Not Any... to be missed. So that is in at the DoubleTree Hilton in Nashville. If you are interested in coming, uh, I think there's still spaces available. Uh, so you need to go to the MSEP, Michigan College of Emergency Physicians, webpage, and you can find the portal to register there. Or if you just uh, search MSEP OBS Conference in the Googles, you can get there. Right. You could also go to obsprotocols.org. I probably need to change the artwork but it still goes to the same site and you can register there and uh we got other t- times coming up here Are you gonna be in orlando are we driving together we figure that out uh i'm flying in early that day oh. so we, did, we didn't figure it out are you driving down <laughs> i guess i'm driving alone now oh, that's no problem man. that's all right i'll listen to this podcast <laughs> but um uh, so, so go ahead i'm sorry let's say the uh, observation interest group meeting is tuesday may 16th um it is from 9 to 9.50, and it's in Celebration 13, which I guess is a room on the convention level uh, of the conference center there in Orlando. Um, so I did send out an email via the ASAP listserv. This is actually a plug for the observation interest group through SAEM. Uh, our membership is actually fairly negligible. Um, so if you are a member of, ASA, or of SAEM, uh, you get one free interest group to join. So make sure that you've joined uh, the observation interest group. Um, And if you've already joined one, it's probably worthwhile to pay to join the observation interest group. Definitely if you are an ASAP section member, um, we have at our meetings, we have a little different uh, focus on more education and research stuff, uh, as opposed to at the ASAP meeting, uh, it tends to be more policy and uh, service stuff. So, hope to see everybody out there and if 
again, if you have not joined the observation medicine interest group uh, for SAEM, please do. Yeah, I mean, I think at these uh, interest group meetings, we definitely talk a little bit more uh, concretely about the the research as opposed to like the policy and how to do things with service. So uh, it's very nice to come out and face to face people uh, with these sort of big academic backgrounds. So uh, look forward to seeing you guys in Orlando. So yeah. So uh, this episode, we're going to talk about a couple of things, a couple of articles, and uh, we're going to take some. Uh, emails from the ASAP Ops Liftserv and kind of go from those emails to uh, a more in-depth discussion here on the podcast and we'll be right back after a quick break. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, this is Matt Wheatley. And this is Onwar again and we want you to come out to see us in September uh, this year for the Observation Medicine Science and Solutions Conference. Are you the director of an observation unit that just started or have you had an observation unit that you're looking to grow? Uh, do you have billing or coding questions? Well, all that stuff's going to be answered at the conference this year. Right. We're going to be talking about the newest and latest protocols. We're going to have the leaders and the people who publish the papers there, unlike a lot of observation conferences. And we're going to be at the Doubletree downtown in Nashville, one of my pl favorite places to go. Yeah, uh, we had the conference there two years ago, and uh, it rained the first night, but uh, we still had a great time, had a great attendance. Um, so... We're back there by popular demand. Right. So September 14th and 15th, 2017, Nashville, Tennessee, the Doubletree Hilton, uh, Nashville downtown, and it is put on by the Michigan College of Emergency Physicians. You can go to mset.org for more information, or you could go to obsprotocols.org and click the link there. So hopefully we see you then. All right. So the first article uh, we're going to be discussing is the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Scale, uh, which was published last month by the Risk Score or Decision Rule, Decision Tool Juggernauts up in Ottawa, Ian Steele et al. Um, and this is actually a uh, very timely uh, publication. You know, I give a monthly talk to the residents on... Um, the observation medicine rotation at Emory, the second year residents every month uh, and on heart failure in the OBS unit. And kind of the crux of my talk is that we really don't have any good prospectively validated decision tools for the ED as to who needs to be admitted and who goes home and who goes to observation. Um, and while this particular paper did not answer specifically who goes to observation and, and there are some other issues with it that we'll kind of get into, um, it definitely uh, closes the gap. It's 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 a well done study. They had a, they had a number of patients, and so um, it's definitely a, a good it's definitely a good first pass. And I think as it itself is validated in other centers, and as you know, there's op options obviously to look at the scale and see how it performs for folks who go to the observation unit. We may get a little more a uh, little more tweaking on it. Um, so uh, kind of to get to the uh, risk score itself. So they had previously published on the Ottawa Heart Failure Risk Score, and they were looking to prospectively validate this risk score uh, in in their facility. Uh, and they actually 
had 1,100 patients, which is uh, not, that's a lot of patients. That's a lot of patients. And their mean age was actually 77, almost 78, with a uh, standard deviation of about 10 years. So it, at least what we see at Grady, my, my impression is that it skews a little older, probably about 10 years older than what our current population is. Um, their primary outcome was to look for uh, significant adverse events. And they defined the significant ad or serious adverse events as death within 30 days, admission to a monitored unit, intubation, non-invasive ventilation, myocardial infarction, or relapse of their disease resulting in hospital admission within 14 days. What they found was that in the overall cohort, uh, serious adverse events occurred in 15.5% of cases, uh, 19 0.4% admitted, 10.2% discharged. Um, and so when they applied the Ottawa Heart Score and had a cutoff of one, and I'll get into the score in a second, um, they found an increased sensitivity for finding those serious adverse events uh, of 91% compared to 71% without the score. Um, they did note that there was an increase in admissions, uh, however, using this. Um, they also ran the analysis adding in an end-tidal pro-BNP value um, and found that, uh, again, their sensitivity was increased. So their overall conclusion was that they found uh, that the validation arm of this study here was highly sensitive for significant adverse events in acute heart failure patients um, with, the, with the caveat that it did increase admission rates. Well, let me ask you this. So uh, it seems like that could be something that could be very attractive to try to put in a sort of ops pathway. But what's your take on this uh, pro BNP thing that they used? Well, I, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your take on it too. It, you know, anytime you have these studies where they use a biomarker, my first thought is, is this what we use at our institution? And so if it's right. not, it's it's hard to know if it's easily translatable. Mm -hmm. um, we do not use an NT pro BNP. I know a lot of folks, you know, champion it as being more sensitive than just a regular BNP. Um, so again, it's hard to take that and apply it directly to our, uh, to our population. Right. I think that, that, like you say, is just going to be one of those things where people start to use this and kind of try to adapt it to where they are. They're going to come up with either, you know, concordant results or maybe some things that aren't quite as accurate, almost like with the heart score. Yeah. You know, people are going to start to do this. You're going to see abstracts, hopefully, uh, maybe not this upcoming ASAP, but maybe the one after that where people try to use this in an observation setting. I'm very curious to see how that uh, applies. I mean, the other things I think are very translatable in it. And one thing, if you're not able to translate it, you should be doing, and that's the, uh, the walking oxygen saturation at the close to discharge, right? Yeah. That was one of the things, right? Yeah. And I, I, you know, some would cite that as kind of a negative part about this, that, that, you know, a lot of people don't do that in an ED, but, you know, especially for somebody you're thinking of sending home or possibly to the OBS unit, that can actually be part of your assessment. I think ED that's totally reasonable to do. I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, other things that were somewhat of a, an issue here now, you know, obviously I would encourage you all to go and read the paper because there's, you know, nuances and larger things that we're not discussing here. But um, the way they set the bar was, so it was on a nine point scale. And even if you had one point that was considered, that was their cut point. So people at zero 
were thought to be less risk and could be sent home and he, greater than one greater than one higher risk but they have certain things on there like history of intubation for respiratory distress and you know obviously that's a significant thing if a patient's had to be intubated but in the day and age of non-invasive ventilation you know you wonder what role non-invasive ventilation plays uh, if somebody's had a history of needing uh, BiPAP either pre-hospital or in the ED or has been admitted on BiPAP uh, for, a, for a significant amount of time while they diurese and afterload reduce um, would that move the needle one way or the other. Um, specifically for somebody going to the observation unit, is, is that, should that be, you know, we, we've all seen patients that come in and are in a lot of distress and they get on a nitro drip and they get on BiPAP and by the time you're ready to admit them, they're off the nitro drip and they're off the BiPAP and the medicine team's like, well, can't they go to the OBS unit? And, and you know, it'd be great if there were some predictive data that shows if this patient needed BiPAP at any point in their ED stay that you know they're higher risk, or they're they're more at risk for either a prolonged hospitalization or a, or a you know relapse or something like that. I, I got to tell you, a lot of times in my uh, experience, if the patient is hypertensive and requires BiPAP, they get better very quickly. Right, you fix one of the two things, and yep. like those patients, if they come off of the BiPAP within the first hour or so, like yep. they, in my experience, seem to do really true. well in OBS. Well, not, I I would say that's more true of heart failure than it is COPD. I think the heart failure folks, once they get started on the appropriate treatment and they're diuresing and their afterload's going down, you know, unless they've smuggled in a bag of Fritos or <laughs> you know they accidentally get some IV fluids you know they're generally going to get better whereas the COPD patients they can they can have more of a protracted course and have more kind of relapsing remitting uh course so uh I don't know I you know it's this is obviously uh you know an interesting article and it's interesting to see kind of where where this will go whether you know you know the score as is or uh, maybe different scores where they tweak it a little bit. Um, and one thing that would be nice to see, obviously, would be an OBS arm of this, of, you know, maybe patients with a lower risk profile would be okay for the OBS unit versus versus uh, upstairs. So, um, you know, potential fodder for uh, ASAP Research Forum or a uh, SAEM poster, possibly. Yeah, no, that's a really cool article, and I'm, I'm excited about what's going to come out of that. So I looked up an article. Yeah. And which uh, article? Um, uh, this one I read back in when it came out. Actually, I read the paper version first, but it's uh, by uh, Dr. Graham P. Martin, who's a PhD, uh, and it came out in the Annals of uh, I believe March of this year. But it was a Qualitative study of emergency physicians' views on the use of observation stays at three hospitals uh, in the U.S. and England. And so in their introduction, they kind of uh, laid out the groundwork for this. And so we talk a lot about how OBS works here and why that's important. But a couple of things they did mention that are kind of pertinent, and uh, you may or may not have known this, uh, but the VA actually has had a huge increase in observation stays. And uh, obvious, and, and the thing is, is like the VA hospital increased their amount of observation stays, and they're not subject to rack audit or any of that. Right. So uh, they so did. Totally, do you think it's a cost containment measure? That's, that's right. I mean, because th these are direct federal dollars, essentially that that they're spending to keep. Right. Well, so that's kind of what the they're probing at in this is interviewing people to figure out exactly why that is. 
I mean, in the VA uh, paper that they referenced, you know, most of those were cardiac, and it's you know a mix of efficiency and cost can cost containment, I guess. But the uh, other kind of use case for doing this study that they mentioned was uh, something that we probably already knew. We don't talk about it much here for the for the U.S. audience is that you know in in the U.K. they have this four hour rule, right? So right, you can't hang out in the ER longer than four hours. So a lot of people who don't immediately meet the observation uh, uh, sorry who immediately don't meet the inpatient criteria end up in these observation sort of settings and so what they did is this uh, pretty intensive sort of interview with uh, physicians in these three hospitals uh, both here and in the UK and it's kind of uh, kind of odd in that Annals published this kind of interview-based study, but it still is uh, I, what I think is, uh, I still think it's pretty interesting. They mention basically that there's like three three use cases or three different scenarios where uh, doctors talk about putting patients in the observation unit. And we kind of dance around these, like one of the biggest one of the biggest sort of uh, benefits of like an observation stay in is uh, this pathway kind of set up like your traditional asthma sort of CHF um, chest pain sort of thing where like we have benefits of efficiency and things like that and uh, so the big benefit would be efficiency and then there's the cost containment by limiting like how long they stay as, as a function of that efficiency. And so those are kind of the two things that we really base a lot of what our pathways are about is like the, the money and the time. And uh, what they found and what I'm sure everybody who listens to this finds in practice is that observation units can either be abused or stretched in a way. So uh, there's like this stereotype that uh, patients get dumped back there without like a clear plan. However, uh, a lot of the physicians that they interviewed talked about it's not that they don't have a clear plan, it's just that the plan doesn't necessarily fit into one of these more established pathways. And what they, uh, the interviewers uh, tried to tease out are what are the kind of scenarios where in which patients would go to an observation uh, unit or use an observation stay that don't really fit and those are things that we're very accustomed to like unsafe home situation or the patient doesn't quote unquote meet inpatient criteria so uh, this flexibility of the observation stay is probably a benefit and it doesn't necessarily have to be dumping yeah I think I felt that as a ED physician you know not with an administrator hat on but as you know actually boots on the ground taking care of patients that 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 the obs the concept of the observation unit is quotes a safe space um it, right. it was interesting how the editors kind of couched this and that i felt i don't know you felt that they couched it more in positive terms that, right. that, that this is a positive article. this is a service to the physician it, obviously the patients but it's service to the physicians who are having to make difficult decisions with patients that don't cleanly fit into uh you know a, a category and of admission or discharge, um, which is, you know, obviously meets the criteria for observation. You know, if there's a medical concern, it gets a little more uh, nebulous, I think, if it's a purely social concern. But I was very interested in the article, uh, you know, in in their conclusion of observation as a safe space for patients. Um, and some of the comments from the physicians are actually very telling. 
I thought, and I don't know what your what your thought on this was. You know, they they say in the front matter of the article that you know they, you know, obviously observation is increasing in its usage, but nobody has really surveyed physicians, specifically emergency physicians, to find out what they think about it. And I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition to the articles in the Journal of Hospital Medicine um, that paint observation in more of a negative light. And, and as a hospitalist, having patients on observation admixed with patients on you know, inpatient status is more onerous, whereas at least the physicians in this article, um, you know, saw some benefit to having the pop-off valve of an observation. You know, I, I don't know what you thought about that, but I mean, I uh, I totally agree. You know, for better or worse, and it's probably uh, the job, if if not mine and yours, more mine and and a lot of Mike's, is to try to bridge this gap between. Uh, translating the science uh, into uh, actual policy and the person who actually got to sit before I think it was the there was a subcommittee on aging for I think the Senate uh, where they talked about uh, observation stays and uh, the person who sat in front of them was a hospitalist right? mm. more specifically it was a hospitalist that I knew and more specifically than that it was a hospitalist who had previously practiced in the UK under this four-hour rule, but he also practiced in the U.S., and uh, that view of observation services is going to be skewed from that set of experiences. So uh, I think what the authors kind of get at at the end in their positive way of looking at it is that, you know, it's, it'll be hard to legislate your way into maybe a more optimal use of observation, and I really don't think that the physicians that they interviewed or the uh, authors think that there's a way to necessarily make it easier uh, to bill for patients and OBS and things like that. Uh, I, what I think they do point out is that there's going to be unintended consequences either way, right? So if you try to make OBS rules more stringent, uh, that's going to make it harder to, to use OBS as a safe space because there's not another one, right? And on, I think one of the earliest podcasts we had, uh, we talked about the observation unit being the safety net for the ER, and the ER is a safety net for the society. So, Yeah, and I think as safety nets for uh, the ER, you have to be able to take some of these folks that are uh, have some social issues or, or societal issues, and so I think it's incumbent on people like us who run observation units to figure out a way to do that. I think one of the problems with some of these social placement issues is that there's not a real crisp endpoint, especially on a weekend or, you know, overnight, you know, the patient may not get placed the next day. And so that's a good thing. A uh, good way to approach that is to sit down with your hospital medicine services and say, okay, you know, come up with a list of criterion of observation unit versus inpatient floor. And then also have a, also have a hard stop on that for, uh, you know, to meet things like the two midnight rule. So, you know, if, you know, we can keep them, especially if there's a medical issue, we can keep them in the observation unit uh, past the first midnight. And then if it looks like we're going to pass the second midnight, then we'll go ahead and transition them to inpatient care. Um, you know, and then you have to monitor that very closely because if, if you find that all of them are getting admitted, then you may need to rethink that. But um, yeah, I, I thought this article was uh, a very interesting read. If you get a chance to read it, for all of the different quotes and uh, the more extended kind of interview questions that they asked. But they kind of concluded that there's probably a third sort of 
case for observation, not just efficiency, not just cost saving, but maybe as a safe space or an outlet for these more complicated, don't fit into a neat box for inpatient care kind of situations? Well, I'd say we see that at Grady to some extent where patients that may be in a uh, more connected healthcare system would be discharged and follow up with your primary doctor, but the concern is always that the patient will have limited ability to follow up. So we'll put them in the OBS unit overnight. I, I think a lot of our cellulitis patients are probably patients that in another setting could go home on oral antibiotics and would have the, the mechanisms to f either call a doctor or follow up if they weren't feeling well. Um, you know, So I think a lot of our patients get to the OBS unit just to get that watchful waiting uh, time frame. So uh, exactly. yeah, I think we're seeing that happen at least on our side of the pond. So uh, just to switch gears uh, for a quick second, we actually have a new uh, podcast email and you can send us some emails and, and or questions about uh, observation services and things like that. Um, right now we'll kind of use stuff from the ASAP OBS listservs as discussion points, but uh, if you get a chance, uh, you can email us at uh, observation. Uh, that's observation, except with a P at the beginning, and uh, observation at gmail.com. You can send us whatever. Uh, tell us if you like the show and uh, maybe what we can do differently other than quit the show. And, <laughs> uh, and maybe even uh, ask us some uh, policy questions. We'll do our best to answer. Uh, but this uh, past month, we had a couple of interesting things on the uh, ASEP uh, OBS listserv. Again, uh, just a quick plug. If you are in the ASAP OBS section, we just finished the uh, first of two newsletters for this year. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. Uh, did you see it yet? Uh, I did. Yeah, I read through it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Quality it's a, document. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a pretty good pretty good issue. There's uh, articles about the moon and uh, there's updates from various sides of observation, but. There was one issue that kind of uh, caught my attention on the um, ASAP OBS listserv this week, and that was about billing. Uh, did you read that one also, Matt? Yeah, I tried to pay attention to the nuances of it, and it's, this is why I really enjoy the ASAP OBS listserv, because there's so many different perspectives that, you know, working in the southeast in an academic center... I'm just unaware of some of the issues that go on at some of these other centers, so it's great to see a broader perspective. Um, what, what was the uh, kind of the initial email? So the upshot of it was uh, talking about their observation setup, and they have two APPs, uh, nurse practitioners or PAs, and they do the work uh, in the observation unit. I guess they're stand, standing there, uh, or they're stationed in the unit all day. And uh, they have physicians around, but the caveat is that the uh, APPs are employees of the hospital. So that's the that was the question. And he was told by their billing folks that they should not uh, additionally bill as physicians uh, E&M charges. So. Specifically for the observation stay. Right, for the observation stay. So the... 99218992199920 those could not be billed by the physician group because they were be being billed by the APPs who were hospital employees um, and so the question i think broadly the listserv was basically has anyone else dealt with this what are solutions what's the what is what does the group think about this right so 
you know, there was a lot of uh, interesting responses, and uh, it's it's very hard to tease out this without like a full on. Uh, reimbursement and coding discussion. It really is. That's true, which we will have in spades at the MSEP Ops <laughs> conference. <laughs> that was the shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get to the nitty of the gritty, you come. Yeah, Mike, uh, Mike Gronowski. And, uh, he'll get you straight, I oh, promise. Yeah. But there's some things that you can't do, and the the, the basics of it are, uh, and just correct me if I say this wrong, uh, Matt, is uh, only really one person can bill uh, an ENM charge for the observation. Right. I think more specifically the way I understand it, and again, uh, use that email that Dr. Osborne talked about. Like, if we get any of this wrong, uh, send us an email, and we can we can talk about the corrections on our next show. My thought is that one physician, i.e., physician group, can only bill one ENM code per patient per day. Um, so, if you have a tax ID number as your physician group. Only one person from your group is allowed to submit an ENM code, so that can be an OBS ENM code if they're an OBS, or it can be an ED and ENM code. If there is another group, whether it is an OBS group, uh, a dedicated OBS group, a hospitalist group, um, they can they can submit an ENM code as well, and the ED would submit for the ED side of things. So if you had a patient with chest pain. If I was seeing a patient with chest pain, I would put in the uh, 99285 or you know whatever the appropriate level was. I would admit them to OBS, and then I would turn them over to the OBS group, who then would have to write a separate H and P, and then they could bill, um, and they could bill for that service. Then when the patient gets discharged, they would get the discharge code. Okay. Um, in groups where the physicians are able to be part of each group, I think the also you you're not allowed to work same shifts in the two units in the same day. So if I were working an ED shift uh, and, you know, it's possible then that I could go work the next day, you know, after appropriate time off uh, in the OBS unit, and then I could capture that charge. But if it's a totally separate group, then I, obviously they would, they would get the charge. The specific question here, I think, was surrounding the fact that these were advanced practice nurses uh, who were still being supervised by the ED attendings, um, but were not part of the same group. There wasn't a, uh, I guess, a fiduciary relationship between the right. two of them. So if you, as a physician group, employ your own APPs and supervise them, sure, you can bill with them, no problem. However, if you're on, uh, if these two entities are separate, so the APPs are employed by the hospital, which is one tax ID, and then uh, your group has a different tax ID, then you can't both bill. Right, so you both can't do an ENM charge, uh, and if you and you don't have a relation to where relationship to where you can do a split bill, right? So that would be the split bill would be your traditional sort of thing that we do at uh, Grady and e EHC, where the physicians and the APPs both bill uh, and share. So what probably needs to happen is they need to either work out some payment on the back end with the hospital. So the hospital either needs to fund this uh, supervision uh, or uh, the hospital needs to give up on all the APP billing and let the uh, physicians bill by themselves. But you really can't uh, double bill uh, and you really can't uh, make up a relationship when you're not employing the APPs. Yeah, there, there was also some discussion on the listserv about who is really doing the work. Um, and so, you know, the way we 
crafted at our shops, and again, our APPs are employed by us, is that uh, at least on the EHC side, the APPs are not allowed to drop charge. You know, they, they can't drop charges for observation code, so it has to be done by the physician. Uh, but there are four parts to the discharge summary. Um, so the discharge summary involves, you know, course in the unit, uh, final exam, preparation of discharge instructions, and then follow-up. And so uh, what we make sure of is that when our physician rounds, that, that they themselves are performing the requisite exam, you know, for the appropriate, you know, if it's somebody with belly pain, at least needs to do an exam for a, an, ab, you know, an abdominal exam at least needs to be done. If it's chest pain or asthma, you know, heart-lung exam, et cetera, um, that at least needs to be part of the discharge summary. And the physician can perform that, um, and there the APP is acting not necessarily as a scribe, but the APP is documenting their exam in conjunction with the physician, and then the physician co-signs the note. Um, so that's how we do it at, at our shop. Now, if the APPs, again, are uh, hospital employees, then that gets a little more murky because, you know, you're probably, as the physician, still responsible for them, medic those patients medically, and you're still the attending of record, and you're still signing these charts of, of the hospital employees. So, as Dr. Osborne mentioned, you know, if it's one of these things where your physicians need credit for those RVUs, um, you know, you may need, a, there may need to be a way for the hospital to make that hole on the back end. The, the other side of that is, though, if the hospital is using that revenue from those OBS patients to essentially fund those APP positions, and the, the answer would be if that revenue were gone, then you wouldn't have APPs in your unit. Um, again, that's something I think you'd need to have an understanding from a uh, finance perspective at the hospital. So um, I could be way off in left field on that. So obviously, you know, if, if Anything I said was wrong. Please get us comments, and we'll we'll readdress it because this is. This I think is you're right. I think stuff. you're right, sir. I think you're right. I think uh, you know you, you, if you stick to the basics and uh, uh, kind of make sure that you know everybody's trying to bill uh, just once for yeah. the patient, and it makes sense to be efficient, then we're you're going to be in good shape. But uh, I think that that's a that's a pretty heavy issue. But we're going to be watching over the list serve uh, and uh, seeing if we can translate that into some. Uh, more rousing discussions in the future but um i think that's probably all we're gonna cover today uh but we're gonna be trying to do again more podcasts we're gonna see you at uh, sam possibly mm -hmm. and again in nashville and then in uh where's asap asap's in washington right yeah i think it's in dc it's in dc so we'll see you there too so uh until next time uh don't forget if you don't have an obs unit uh you got a problem so. all right see you later all right till next time